The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good afternoon and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now here's your host, Mary Woods. Good afternoon everyone, this is Mary Woods and I'm your host today. Um, We have a very special topic uh, as far as I'm concerned. Um, You know, throughout my education and and professional experience, Um, women and women's issues have been very near and dear to my heart. And I think that oftentimes women in treatment are overlooked or I know the availability of um, treatment for women, certainly on the East Coast, is not as robust as it is as it is on the West Coast. And um, today we're very uh, fortunate to have our is our guest, Dr. Marianne Roy, who's the clinical director at Crossroads in Maine. And Crossroads has been treating women since, I believe, the early 80s, if not before then. And they've been one of the pioneers in treating um, women with addictive disorders and, and mental health uh, disorders as well. And so our our show today is devoted to women and women um, as how they experience uh, mental illness and substance use disorders and how they recover. So let me introduce our guest. Uh, Dr. Marianne Roy is a licensed psychologist who has extensive experience in mental health and substance abuse fields working with children, adolescents, and adults. She is the clinical director for Crossroads in Maine, and she oversees all of their outpatient and residential clinical practices at the agency's four sites. So welcome, Dr. Roy, to our show. Great. Thank you very much, Mary, for having me. Well, and um, I applaud Crossroads. It's always been a resource for women. They've kind of been the lone um, tree in the in the woods and that has really dedicated themselves to women. Um, can you just give our audience an overview of how women experience like addictive disorders or mental illness? How is it different than men? Sure. Um, I think what's really important, there are several um, factors that lead men and women to um, to use substances um, and, and unique there are unique dynamics at play. Um, biologically, there are differences between men and women. Women tend to um, get intoxicated faster and have patterns of becoming addicted uh, to substance faster than uh, men as well, too, which can um, lead to more medical issues over the long haul. Um, also, there are uh, unique differences in terms of tra- trauma. Uh, both men and women um, early on have similar experiences um, or may have similar experience in terms of the type of trauma that they experience. But as women get older specifically, um, the people that they might be experiencing um, abuse from are the same individuals that are saying, I love you to them. You know, they're the individuals that are the woman's intimate partner. Um, So that poses some real unique challenges for women in terms of 
relationships as, um, as she gets older, as she goes on to develop adult relationships in her life. Uh, you can see these continued cycles and patterns of um, abusive relationships at play. And it's really important that when you're looking at women's treatment, whether it's mental health or addiction, that um, you, you go back a little bit and you start looking at where and how did these things evolve and start. And um, specifically with trauma, we know that um, a woman uh, is much, there's a much higher likelihood of her using a substance to cope with any trauma that she had experienced in her past or present. I think culturally there's a different expectation for, for men who drink uh, it's manly, but for women who drink, the women tend to get called very nasty names if they're if they're drunk or or they have a substance use disorder. There seems to be more of a moral connection to women um, who have addictive disorders than men. Do, do well, you see that? Yes, and I'm glad that you bring that up because what you have to look at is, you know, what does it mean to be a male in a male-based society and what does it mean to be a female in a, in a male-based society? And as women, there's a lot of shame and stigma that they experience when they are challenged with addiction. Um, oftentimes, women are, are mothers, they're the nurturers, they're the caretakers, and um, sometimes they're pregnant and using, and any time that, you know, you're a woman and you're a mother, and you're struggling with addiction, the stigma and the shame and the judgment um, that go along with that um, is, is pretty significant. And oftentimes, it might even result in the woman delaying asking for help or for treatment for her addiction, because it is a very painful thing to come forward and talk about. Um, with men, um, you know, they're oftentimes, um, you know, they hold this belief that they're the breadwinners, they have to support their family, they have to take care of their family, um, you know, there might be, um, you know, substance use that goes along with sporting events and these other, um, you know, he's just drinking to take the edge off. He had a long day at work. Um, seems a little more acceptable. Um, and those are some challenges that men can get caught up with as well. But with women, it's very, very challenging just uh, by virtue of being female and um, oftentimes the caretaking role that they do fall into as moms. Well, I think the other um, thing for women, too, is that there's, uh, there's a tr- tremendous amount of pressure on women to look good. To um, they're, they're, Women are often put on a pedestal. Um, in a way that men aren't, although I know that there's more pressure for men now to look good as well. Mm-hmm. But it just seems like for women, it's um, it's like a double whammy. I, I know um, I used to uh, coordinate a woman's halfway house, and not only did a lot of the women have um, addictive disorders, but they also had eating disorders or they had um, body dysmorphic issues. And, you know, there just seems to be like this self-hatred that women seem to have to a greater extent than men do. Right. Well, what are the ideals that women are held to in our society in terms of what's acceptable for appearance and what isn't acceptable for appearance? You know, you look at uh, some of the toys that young adolescent girls are, are using and appear perfectly appropriate and acceptable in our society, but these are dolls that are much thinner, have a lot more makeup. You know, the skirts on these dolls are getting shorter and shorter. Um, you know, you look at what is... Um, 
appears to be uh, valued or a lot of attention and recognition is given to in, you know, the media. And it's these very sexualized images of females. And it, I mean, just look at magazine covers, right? Um, so women are trying to hold themselves to this standard, whether it's consciously or unconsciously, that really isn't um, even realistic most of the time. And nor should it be realistic. And, you know, when you look at the people that are on television as well, everybody looks to me like they have some type of an eating disorder. I look at Kelly Ripa, mm-hmm. who to me looks perfect. And now, to me, she looks like she, she hasn't eaten in a day in, in months. And mm-hmm. I think of, like, Anne Hathaway and some of the other actresses, right. and, and they just are just way too thin. And, but that's mm-hmm. the ideal. Exactly. And, and how, how is that, you know, how is that shift taking place in our society where, um, this become, is becoming more and more normalized? Um, yeah, I would agree with you. And, it, and these are the images that young girls are seeing. These are the in- images that, uh, women of all ages are, are looking at and watching. And, um, and what's realistic for the average woman who is, you know, who might be working a full-time position or maybe she's working two jobs to support her family. And, um, you know, sometimes these um, reality, these figures um, uh, in the media, you know, they have a lot of people helping them achieve a certain look. And whether or not that is taken to an extreme, um, you know, I think is something that we have to look at because when you mentioned the actresses that you just referred to, over the years you can definitely see this progression to a a thinner image. And, uh, yeah, I think that's something that people need to be looking at, but how many people stop and look at that and really examine what that's about, you know. So it's a good point. So so what kind of... um issues does that bring up in treatment for women when they're trying to get sober? I, you know, I think it's the lack of understanding around women's treatment. I, you know, there are many places that uh, don't separate women and men's treatment, and I think that there are many women out there that definitely benefit from gender-responsive treatment where where the treatment uh, professionals are working with the clients around, specifically the women, you know, what experiences have you had as a female that, uh, you know, in your relationships, in your spirituality, um, you know, in your upbringing that might have been a little different from what your male counterpart experienced and how is that impacting you today? Um, so looking at the trauma that a woman may have experienced. I think it's really important to have uh, gender-separate groups um, because oftentimes, um, you know, the, the violence or the trauma that a woman's experienced has occurred with a male. And if a male is present in one of those treatment groups, it might make it difficult for a woman to start beginning to talk about her trauma. And for a woman to really be doing the addiction work that she needs to do, it's really important that she starts having those discussions with uh, her treatment providers and um, in those group settings at times. So looking at, um, definitely looking at trauma. Um, you know, I think another challenge that presents for women is just lack of child care services. You know, women, if they don't have a safe place to leave their child, for them to be able to go and attend an individual therapy session or to be able to attend some groups or maybe even go away to residential treatment, that makes it very um, problematic for her to to break her cycle of addiction. And while other people might be kind of perceiving that as, oh, she doesn't care, she just keeps using, uh, maybe for her in her mind that's 
what's the better alternative than leaving her children with someone that she doesn't trust or wouldn't be safe? Sometimes there just aren't those supports in place. Uh, I think you got to look at financial resources for women. Um, oftentimes, if women are involved in a DV relationship, that can make it very difficult for them to access treatment. Partner can withhold finances, can withhold um, a vehicle for her to access. We've seen that, you know, where clients have called and said, oh, I can't make it to my appointment today. My partner won't give me the keys to the car. Or they, they knew I had this appointment coming up, but they left anyway. So there are these uh, subtle things that can happen. Um, so treatment providers that are able to see those as red flags and help um, the client problems of around that as opposed to looking at these um, things as the client being resistant to treatment. I think um, at Westbridge, we're gender-specific. We treat men 18 and over, and that, that was by design because um, a number of us had worked in co-ed treatment programs where um, eventually we just became, you know, the treatment issues became about the relationships that were developed in treatment, you know, and, and I firmly believe that when women are together, they act differently than when women are integrated with men, mm-hmm. and I think that it's much easier it's much harder for women to get honest with themselves and to really take care of themselves when they're integrated with men in treatment. I, um, you know, the focus all then becomes on caretaking someone else or feeling like I'm connected to somebody so I must be somebody as mm. opposed to finding out who they, their own identity. And um, I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that. Absolutely. As women, we're we're all relationally oriented. We're uh, driven to relationships, and a lot of times, you know, you had mentioned uh, previously that women are the nurturers, we're the caretakers in our relationships. We do that very naturally. Um, So we need to be able to look at that, those roles that we take on, and while those can be wonderful assets in early uh, recovery and treatment programs, those are things that can also be a way for a woman to avoid looking at her stuff. Um, Also, there's that safety factor, too, um, that's really important to just instill. And with a women's only group, you're able to do that a little bit faster. Um, But we have seen that when it is a mixed-gender group, women do tend to be the nurturers, uh, caretake a little more. They are not going to talk about their previous trauma just because of the male presence in the group. Um, you know, and, you know, women in their addiction cycles, uh, when they do have a partner that is also using, um, you know, sometimes they're using in order to join with their partner because maybe that's the only way that they can um, feel close in their mind. Uh, maybe that's the only way they can feel accepted to their partner. So we have seen women who... And I, and I believe studies support this as well, where they will use more depending on the relationships that they're in in order to uh, connect with and join with others. Um, so it's important to be able to acknowledge those uh, characteristics that we as women um, present with and not necessarily look at that as a downfall, but how can we um, empower each other as women to have more healthy relationships? What do healthy relationships look like? And and people don't um, get sober in isolation, so it's important to have help women start, um, start understanding what a healthy relationship looks like, what healthy boundaries look like, and, and provide them with that corrective experience while they're in treatment. And I think group treatment really is wonderful for women because sometimes you can get at that a little bit faster. So can you define for our audience what a healthy relationship for a woman would be like? <laughs> yeah. 
um, relationships that are built upon mutual respect and trust, uh, relationships where they're not being abused physically, emotionally, sexually, relationships where people are not, um, you know, sometimes our women will tell us, well, I was afraid to come clean about my use because my partner threatened to contact uh or to contact the department to have my children taken away. So any time that you're in a relationship and your your partner is placing these ultimatums on you, that certainly isn't safe either. Uh, relationships where people are trying to isolate you from people that love you and are there to support you from treatment providers, those are also red flags, and it's incredibly important to, to seek help um, immediately when you start ha- that starts happening. And those are difficult cycles to break. And we'll be right back to talk more about uh, women in treatment after this commercial. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. We are bombarded daily with information about beauty products and anti-aging treatments. Do you know how they have been tested? Are they truly going to make a change or just take the change out of your pocket? Tune in to Shelley's Show and Tell with host Shelley Hancock. We'll bring you the top-rated skincare products and treatments tested by Real Transformation Skin Care Centers. We'll motivate you to make the best changes. Listen Mondays at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Health & Wellness. Do you know about Reiki? This method of healing can complement Western medicine as well as other alternative practices. Besides healing, it can have the additional effect of making you feel more positive about yourself and the world around you. By tuning into For the Love of Reiki with host Paula Vale, you'll find how Reiki can improve your health, bring balance into your life, and fill you with joy. For the Love of Reiki is broadcast live every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time and 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back to One Hour's Time. This is Mary Woods, and I'm your host today. And our guest is Dr. Marianne Roy, who is the clinical director of Crossroads in Maine. And we're talking about women and women in treatment and uh, the specific needs of, of women. I think that um, one of the things that I had I have noticed over the years, and I think it's gotten better 
with our current generation, but women are very alienated from other women. We, we tend to be competitive. We walk into a room and say, well, who's taller than me? Who's thinner than me? Who has better clothes than me? Whose makeup is better than me? I mean, we, we always seem to be, um, the people we're most alike in the world, we're often the most uh, distanced from, and, and we're not always encouraged to build relationships with other women. And, and I think that sets women up for um, being in some of the uh, unhealthy relationships that you were describing earlier. And I, and I also think that um, you know trauma plays such a huge role for for women and in whatever behavioral health care environment they're in, whether they're in treatment for depression and bipolar disorder or substance use disorders or eating disorders. And, and uh, you know, I, we just kind of assume that somebody has trauma, but I'm not sure that everybody's always assessing women for trauma or they think that trauma just means about being um, sexually abused. But there are other forms of trauma that women experience as well. And... Um, could you talk a little bit more about uh, trauma in women? Absolutely. And I think what's important to um, when we're talking about trauma, it's, it's to know that not everybody that has trauma in their life is going to go on to develop uh, symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder. So some people think that um, because they're not having the flashbacks, the, the nightmares, the, the panic attacks, uh, the, the, the anxiety in response to environmental cues of previous trauma, sometimes people think, well, I haven't really experienced anything traumatic in my life because I don't have... Um, this these symptoms that would go on to indicate like a diagnosis of PTSD, and that's just not true. Um, there are many different forms of trauma that um, people might encounter in their lifetime, and some people have uh, coping skills and support systems that really help uh, support and get them through those difficult times. And um, but it doesn't mean that that hasn't had a unique role in someone's life. And um, one of the things that we do here at Crossroads, uh, we assess for trauma at every intake with a client when they're coming in through our doors. And what we find is that 93% of the women at intake are reporting that they have had a history of trauma in their life. Um, So as I stated earlier, trauma and addiction, um, there's a high correlation between the two. Um, But that doesn't mean that all these clients are going to be diagnosed with PTSD either. But it's important to look at that. Um, But what's interesting in that statement is that, so if 93% of the women are reporting that when they come in through our doors, once they're in treatment, the other 7% that haven't reported trauma and they start, you know, um, engaging in group treatment or they start engaging um, in individual treatment, they start recognizing, oh, my goodness, that time way back when or that time last year, that is traumatic. That was that is out of the norm. Um, a lot of times when women are coming uh, through our doors, there's been this a long history of um, difficult relationships, um, of being raised in a household where there's been addiction, um, and things and behaviors and uh, certain maladaptive coping skills have all become very, what appears to be normal to them. So they haven't stopped to think about, oh my goodness, this has played a significant role in my life. This has been uh, played a significant role in the feelings I'm experiencing, and wow, this has had a significant impact on my addiction, because when I use, I don't have to feel this. 
So really um, assessing for trauma um, is incredibly important, whether it's mental health treatment or addiction treatment. You know, one of the um, benefits of living in New Hampshire is that at this Every four years, we get inundated with all of the presidential candidates, and we were at a town um, hall meeting on Monday, and um, one of the candidate that was uh, holding the town hall had brought in a mom and a dad who lost a child in the Sandy Hook um, massacre that happened a few years ago, and you look at the and just looking at this woman, just her eyes. You know how they talk about a thousand yard stare for somebody who's been like in combat or whatever. And this woman just, she was just, her look was just vacant, you know? I mean, her, she had that tight look about her. And, and you could think there are, there are some things that people experience that stay with them forever. And some people have resilience and are able to keep going forward. And then, you know, other people don't have those protective factors or um, that that help them build the resilience to move forward. Right. And and so they end up in treatment. And I think, you know, in terms of um, being trauma-informed, I think it's important for people to understand that there's more to that than just asking, have you ever had trauma? Right. You know, just doing a trauma yeah. assessment. That there, there's, a, there's an environment that needs to be created that encourages people to feel safe. Um, being on time for groups and meetings is, is about being trauma-informed, you know, because people don't want to be left to be felt abandoned again or um, discarded in some way. Absolutely, and I'm, I'm going to, I'll talk about what it means to have an environment that is trauma-informed, but I'm really glad that you just gave the example of time because that's, that's an example I, I give to um, staff and clients often. Um, the boundary around time says so much, and if you have a client who's coming in and is chronically late, chronically late, and um, there was a time in the past where, um, you know, it was a while back I had somebody who was chronically late and, you know, processing what that was about for her. And over time, one of the things she shared was, well, I didn't think people would notice if I was late. I didn't think it would matter to other people if I didn't show up. And that was so reflective of the relationships and experiences that she had had in her past. And again, so while somebody might kind of view that as, oh, this person's not ready for treatment or this person's resistant, now this this person is really feeling like they're not having an impact in the world that they're living in. So why does it matter if they show up or don't show up? And I, I think that's one of the beautiful things about treatment is because people can start having that um, sense of purpose, of belonging, accountability. Um, and also I think that that boundary around time, you know, where do I begin? Where does the other person begin? Where do I stop? Where does the other person stop? Um, and we're beginning to respect also um, the other people in the room um, and being able to look at how do my behaviors impact other people's behaviors. So, so there's so many wonderful things that you can do with the example of time. So I'm really glad that you just mentioned that. Um, but to talk a little bit about what it what does it mean to have an environment that's trauma-informed, you know, that means that um, everybody's 
paying special attention to boundaries, that boundaries between staff and clients are always very clear um, and that people are following through and doing what they say that they're going to do, um, making sure to the best of people's ability that boundaries between participants are being adhered to and, and teaching what that means. Um, you might have some people that are very, for very, you know, a very simple example, are huggers and they want to hug everybody and someone's crying in group and they want to go in for a hug, but yet the other, the other client might be very resistant to that. So how do you teach boundaries within the group, but also making sure that these are boundaries that staff are um, adhering to with clients as well and um, setting that standard of a corrective experience in terms of, um, you know, um, I guess approaching situations uh, always with the lens of this person may have a history of trauma. You know, you're not going to go up behind somebody in a group setting, specifically a female, and tap her on the shoulder when she doesn't know she, that someone's approaching her from behind because that can set somebody off significantly. Um, so simple body language, um, awareness of, you know, you know, acknowledging when you're coming into the room or pro- approaching somebody from the back, um, language that uh, with women that's especially important is language that empowers recovery and that empowers women to want to continue in their recovery journey and owning their own power and owning their voice and, um, and beginning to develop a sense of confidence. We don't want to use um, approaches that might appear condescending with our clients or shaming in any way um, because that's just going to inhibit the treatment experience for them. Um, you know, in a general feeling for safety for everybody involved, if you're in a residential program, in a group treatment setting, individual therapy, and there are specific things that, um, that staff will outline when someone begins treatment. Well, and I think the other thing, too, for providers to look at is, is your parking, well, parking lot well lit? You know, um, how long is the corridor between your office and, and the door so that so that people feel safe and that, that the environment is supportive of people's safety. Because if you have a trauma experience, all of those things are um, scary for folks. And we'll be right back after this commercial to talk more about women in treatment. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Much of the time, the illnesses that people feel are simply symptoms, and they mask the root cause of what the real health problem is. You can take back control of your own health, starting with Billionaire Healthcare. This program is hosted by Ashley Black and Dari Samia. 
Our program will introduce you to fascia, which is the knowledge of the living matrix. This bit of knowledge can bring you the health secrets that only the rich and famous have known until now. Listen Mondays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 7 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health and Wellness. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back to One Hour at a Time. This is Mary Woods, and I'm your host today. And our guest is Dr. Marianne Roy, who is the Clinical Director of Crossroads in Maine, which provides both outpatient and residential uh, services in four different sites um, in southern Maine. And we've been talking about women and women in treatment, and we know, uh, just kind of summarize, we know that... Um, you know, uh, substances affect women differently than men. There's biological reasons for that. We know that women will often um, become addicted uh, sooner than men, given the same amount of uh, volume of substances. We know that there are special barriers for treatment for women. One is that women can be isolated. They could be dependent on a, a partner for transportation, um, for for basic life support in terms of food, shelter. Um, the other barrier can be child care for, for treatment. Um, that if there was a time um, in New Hampshire for a, wom- a woman who was single to get child care, she had to be declared an unfit mother to go into treatment, which is a, whole, which is a horrible thing to have to go through anyway, but you have to go through that in order to get better. It was it was just, it was almost insurmountable for some women. And um, we used to, there, there was, there's an old statistic that I think is probably still current. Um, for every four men that go into treatment, um, three out of four of them will have a spouse at home taking care of the home, taking care of the kids. For every four women that go into treatment, there's a, there's a spouse or a partner at home taking care of the home, taking care of the kids. So, so it's a lot easier for men to leave and, and go anywhere than it is for women. So, so there's huge barriers just culturally for women. But once a woman gets into treatment, Dr. Roy, what are some effective um, treatment interventions for women? Sure. Well, I would, I would start by saying that a relational model of treatment is incredibly effective for women who are entering treatment. Um, As we had talked about earlier, women are very relational. Um, We strive for relationships. When there is a disconnect in in any of our relationships that are near and dear to us, we feel a sense of um, maybe anxiety, loss, discomfort, and we're kind of looking at how do we fix that. And so there can be... You know, there's a range, there's a continuum, right? There's an area where there's that healthy drive to, okay, we need to repair something, something's disconnected. But there are also um, maladaptive ways and and challenging relationships. And if you're in a relationship where there's this continued cycle of abuse and you're constantly working on how do I fix that, how do I fix that, 
it takes a lot to break that cycle. So when you have women coming into treatment, utilizing a relational model, really, um, it, it really sets the groundwork for what are healthy relationships. Um, so this is a little bit of a recap of, of what we were just talking about, but relationships that are built upon mutual uh, trust and respect, relationships that have healthy boundaries, treatment that starts on time and ends on time, um, you know, a schedule that outlines what, what, what is the day going to look like, what are people going to expect, you know, consistency and rules and guidelines. Um, those are all very, uh, very important when you're doing women's treatment, especially. Um, some of the treatment approaches that we like to use at Crossroads uh, for women, um, you know, we, we use a lot of Stephanie Covington's material. This is an area of specialty for her. Um, so things like helping women to recover, which is, um, you know, a workbook, and it really deals with, um, helps women to look at the progression of their disease cycle, but looking at their self, how do they define themselves? Um, you know, what does their sense of self look like and their self-esteem? Um, looking at their relationships, you know, what do those early families look like? Um, their family of origin, what were the things that they experienced? Um, what about, you know, themselves as mothers? Maybe what, what is it, how did they become, um, you know, the woman they are today based on the experiences they have and what is the image of the woman that they see themselves becoming in their recovery? Really important to look at sexuality and addiction as well. Earlier um, in this conversation, Mary, you were talking just about kind of how women's um, women are becoming more and more sexualized in our culture. And I mean, this has been spanning many, many years, but this, uh, but also this body image around what the ideal is is becoming thinner and thinner and thinner and less and less realistic or attainable. Um, but what is, so what does a woman's sexual identity look like within our culture? So again, what does it mean to be a female in a male-based society? Uh, and then, of course, in any, for anybody, it's really important to look at spirituality. You know, where does spirituality play a role in, um, in your recovery process? I think for women, um, something that Stephanie Covington outlines very nicely is just this uh, notion around powerlessness. Uh, that's the first step, right? But for a woman to say that they're powerless over something, and if, you know, if this woman has had trauma in her history, that's a very difficult thing to begin talking about. I don't have any power as a woman when, you know, all my life I've been trying to have a voice and trying to have a sense of power. Um, so it's really important to to look at that component as well. Um, so utilizing some practices that are specific to women is is very important and. Um, based on some of the things I just mentioned, it might be hard for a woman to um, begin addressing those issues if she is in a mixed-gendered group and, and has men present because some of these things, you need to be in a setting with, with your peers um, and people who've had similar experiences to begin processing what do all these things mean. Well, and I think, um, you know, there are there's some just biological things that are different for, for women. I know oftentimes if, if a woman has been abusing substances for a while, they they may not be ovulating anymore. They may not have periods. 
and then they get into recovery, and then all of a sudden, you know, they weren't using birth control, and they have their first um, sexual experience, and they're pregnant. I mean, mm-hmm. and, or it's the opposite. You know, they go for a long period of time in early recovery, and they aren't. They don't have. Uh, they're not menstruating during early recovery, and I think that every woman's body is so different, and that. Treatment needs to kind of help women understand their bodies, so, you know, to do breast exams, to, to do birth control, to look at different um, sexually transmitted diseases, and to just look at their overall health um, because coronary artery disease is a silent killer for women, and we know that people who, have, <clears throat> who are in long-term recovery uh, tend to have more vascular disease than people um, the, the normal population. Absolutely. And oftentimes in the addiction process, like you said, women are not paying attention um, to their to their physical health and, um, symptoms. And they're not attending doctor's appointments consistently and frequently enough. And sometimes if they are, they might not be following up with the care. Right. Um, you know, I think another thing that's really important to look at is, you know, women, um, we go to our primary care physicians frequently for, uh, you know, they're usually the first person that you go to when a symptom starts presenting because we think sometimes, you know, there's got to be a physical thing related to this. This isn't necessarily an emotional thing or there's a lot of stigma around mental illness in our society. So, you know, some people are just not going to go down that road quick and are you know, um, initially, I guess is what I should say. But what happens is when women are going to our primary care physicians, and I think that there are absolutely wonderful primary care physicians out there, and I think that PCPs are doing a great thing now by integrating more social workers into um, into their offices and, and really who are able to who are trained and able to assist um, people that might be experiencing more acute mental health symptoms, but women are 48% more likely to be prescribed a medication when they go to um, their doctors compared to men when they're, you know, um, that medication might be a narcotic for pain. It might be something for anxiety. It could be, you know, a benzo for anxiety. So these are things that are very concerning um, for women especially because what we have found is that you know, women will come to us who have been on a benzodiazepine for 10 years or so um, and that, you know, maybe were put on it during just a, a brief period of, of stress in their life and now they have developed this dependency on it. And we certainly see stuff like this with chronic pain and narcotics as well. But women in our culture are, are more apt to be prescribed something by their PCC um, than a man. And I think, you know, that's a gender difference that's important to look at as well. Exactly, and I think oftentimes if women are express- expressing their feelings or they're, they're um, perceived as having a mental health dis- disorder, when in fact, you know, they may not have a borderline personality disorder, mm-hmm. maybe they're just standing up for themselves, you know, maybe they're, they're just being assertive, and, and I think oftentimes when women try to empower themselves, mm-hmm. it can be pathologized. Absolutely. And, and what's going on in our, in our culture and, and maybe with other professionals where they can't sit with and hear this stuff where they're, you know, they're presented with certain symptoms. And I think, um, you know, I guess in the defense of many PCPs um, in this country, they're seeing people very quick, very rapidly. Um, so they'll either refer out to the social worker or maybe they'll say, you know what, try this antidepressant or try, try this medication as opposed to maybe just more th- talk therapy needs to happen. Maybe some, there needs to be some environmental changes that take place um, in the person's life as well. 
Exactly. And we'll be right back for our final segment after this commercial. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Do you feel that you aren't at your best when it comes to your personal health? Even if your doctor gives you a clean bill of health and says everything is in working order, perhaps you aren't feeling at the top of your game. Dr. Rebecca Risk overcame pain and fatigue despite all tests to the contrary. Learn how she put her health back on track and how you can too on Falling Through the Cracks, live every Monday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, 12 noon Eastern Time on Voice America Health & Wellness. You want to have the highest quality of life possible, and you want to live as healthy a life as possible, so you can do everything you want to do. But there are all kinds of myths with regard to what's right, what's healthy, and what is best. Debunk that misinformation by tuning into Shattering the Status Quo with Dr. Michael Quast. You should be able to make your own choices with your health and your life, and you should be well-informed to make those choices. Tune in every Wednesday at noon Eastern Time, 9 a.m. Pacific Time, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back to One Hour at a Time. This is Mary Woods, and I'm your host today. And our guest is Dr. Marianne Roy, who's the clinical director at Crossroads, Maine, um, which treats women, but you also treat um, uh, adolescents and, and men as well, too, don't you? Well, we don't treat adolescents, but we do treat uh, okay. men and women. So okay. I can take you through kind of a rundown of our programs, if that's helpful, and different levels of care and how to access treatment with us. That would be helpful. Okay, and or... Or other places if you're not in Maine. So, go ahead. Sure. So, uh, Crossroads um, has been around since the 70s, and we have two outpatient locations one in Kennebunk, uh, Maine, and Scarborough, Maine, where we provide outpatient therapy for both men and women who um, are experiencing 
experiencing challenges with addiction or mental health. We have an intensive outpatient program as well in um, our Scarborough location, and we have two primary treatment programs for women with addiction, um, both for women 18 and over. And one of those programs is a children and mothers program, um, which is a 28 to 60-day treatment program. So if you're a woman who's struggling with addiction at any stage in your pregnancy or has small children and um, you would like to bring your children with you to treatment, um, that's a program that uh, would be very appropriate. Um, But in terms of accessing treatment and trying to to identify what level of care is appropriate, that's a question we often um, get, as I'm sure other uh, treatment providers do. And and so um, maybe a, a good thing to explain would be, you know, what how do you access a different level of, of care? Um, and I would answer that by, you know, recommending that the first point is, is you know, going to your local treatment provider for an intake. And at that time, um, a thorough psychosocial assessment should be completed that's really looking at, you know, what has been the uh, acuity of symptoms, what has been the chronicity of symptoms, what has been the pattern of substance abuse and the frequency of substance abuse, And, uh, you know, sometimes if there's not a high level of intensity of symptoms, um, an outpatient, you know, therapist can be a wonderful support. Uh, But when you're finding that more and more of your symptoms of of mental health or more and more symptoms of addiction are impacting your ability to successfully hold down a job, um, impacting your ability to be... um, present in your your life and in your relationships and to be there as a parent, um, you know, and you're using several times a week, you might need something a little more intensive to help break that cycle of addiction. So exploring ideas of an intensive outpatient program, um, for example, uh, they have these programs for both um, uh, mental health and or uh, people struggling with addiction. And these are several hours of group daily uh, to help people get a little more structure, education around the processes that they're experiencing in the hopes that they can uh, restabilize and and get back into their life. But every once in a while, um, or frequently, I should say, residential treatment is often necessary uh, to, you know, completely remove somebody from the environment and put them in an environment that's very structured and staffed 24-7 uh, to help them gain some stability, engage in more intensive services throughout the day, seven days a week, to really learn more about um, the either mental health cycle or addiction cycle, and, and hopefully in those treatment settings, developing some um, healthy coping skills and uh, relearning how to live in one's life and be that person that they know that they can be and always dream that they could be. I think it's important for uh, women out there to understand, too, that once a woman gets into treatment, she often does better than men when they get into treatment. I mean, once they once they're able to get the treatment they need, they tend to have very good outcomes. Absolutely. Uh, women have very uh, great outcomes, especially if they remain in contact with the supports that they've developed while they've been in treatment. Um, women will utilize their support. Women will ask for help, and I think that's something that we see in our society. Um, sometimes men are not quick to ask for help because, you know, um, that's, that's, I guess, a whole other show. You know, what does it mean to be a male and male-based society? Um, but women um, do very well with treatment, Absolutely. 
So if anybody in our audience is looking for treatment or they have a loved one who is a woman and is looking for treatment, it's really important, I believe, to look for um, gender-responsive treatment. So when you call up a facility, ask them how they treat women. Um, in a perfect world, it would be, you know, a, a segregated gender track where men and women don't interact, but if they do, it needs to be gender-responsive. Um, what other things would you recommend for people looking for treatment, for women looking for treatment? Yeah, I I think that's an important question to ask. And, and so making sure that programs know what it means to be gender responsive, what does it mean to be, you know, in those groups, are they gender separate as well? Um, you know, what do the living facilities look like? Um, you know, um, you can even ask about their outcomes. What what does the ongoing continuum of care look like when they complete one level of care? How's that support going to span um, when they do leave treatment? Another important factor is always to ask about what does the family involvement look like? Women are returning to their families oftentimes. They might have young children at home. They might be returning to spouses. So it's really important to incorporate the family in the treatment as well. And are there um, supports for, for parenting while someone's in treatment as well? That's a great question, absolutely. And in our Wyndham Residential Program, which is our Children and Mothers Program, there's a parenting curriculum that we utilize there. So that's another important um, question that women can ask when they're accessing and looking for services. If people want to learn more about Crossroads or want to get in contact with you, what is the best way to um, they can do that? Con- Sure. They can contact us at 207-773-9931, and they can also go on to our um, webpage at www.crossroadsme.org where they can learn about all of our services and what we have to offer for, um, for, for women, for men, for families. And I think it's really important for women to understand that you're worth it and that whatever it takes to get into treatment um, you're just worth it, and uh, you're, you're, you have value just because you're you, not because you're a wife or a mother or a girlfriend or a partner or whatever. You have value just because you're a human being. Well said. Um, it's just so important to empower women and um, to really understand if you do have a loved one um, who is in need of treatment, really look at the barriers to getting that person into treatment. It may not be that they don't want to go. It may just be that they don't feel that they can go. If they're responsible for the child care, the cooking, the cleaning, and if they're, and if they're part of the breadwinner for um, the family too, there's a lot of pressure on women to um, do multiple things. And if they're not there, there's a huge void in, in the family system. Right, right. Uh, Mary, well said, and a wonderful recap of everything that we talked about today. And, um, you know, I think that uh, women's treatment, especially uh, for addiction, is just a a very important um, component to consider. So if people are uh, treatment providers out there and they're working with women, um, you know, I'd encourage them to look up the the works of Stephanie Covington. She's done a lot of research in this area um, and to, you know, pay special attention to the trauma that they may have experienced, the trauma, the relationship that, that they've experienced. And just by virtue of, of uh, our women showing up to treatment, there's an incredible amount of, um, of drive to get better. And women are very motivated uh, 
to get better. And uh, just because they're a mother, um, you know, if they're using, it's really important to break down the shame and stigma and judgment around that and reduce the barriers so that way women do feel comfortable walking through all of our doors to get the help and treatment that they need. Very well said, Dr. Roy. Thank you for spending this hour with us, and I hope everyone has a great week. We appreciate you joining us today for one hour at a time. Successful recovery from a substance abuse problem or mental illness depends on education and support of loved ones. Thank you for being that support system. Be sure to tune in next week for another hour of education and compassion. One hour at a time. We'll see you next week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 